Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, I am joined by Megan Payne. Megan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me as always. And we are going to hear from Luke before the end of the show. He's going to join us a little later. So on this week's show, we are going to pick up where we left off last week on Democrats' decision to open an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. It was a wild week with document releases, press reports digging up new details, and some testimony on Capitol Hill. Then the last couple of weeks have seen dozens of youth-led climate change demonstrations around the globe and here in Georgia. We'll talk about where Georgia Senate candidates stand on climate change and what stands in the way of real action on this issue. And then finally this week, Luke is going to join us for a quick discussion because Georgia lawmakers began the offseason with budget hearings last week, and they mostly heard about the state of the economy and a little bit of the political pressure that the governor is getting on some of these budget cuts. So we're going to discuss our takeaways from these hearings. But first, let's go ahead and start with impeachment. And boy, what a week it was. Last Tuesday, Speaker Pelosi announced a formal impeachment inquiry into President Trump, and I thought we might be at the beginning of a long legal slog, but that was definitely not the case. Instead, we got a whistleblower report which said that the president and his aides tried to lock down a summary of his call with Ukraine in an attempt to cover up his effort to pressure a foreign leader to investigate his domestic political opponent. And we got some more documents and disclosures on the president's conduct in the press, and we heard some reactions from Capitol Hill. So let's discuss the latest developments on this. And Megan, I think the place to start is to recap a little bit of what happened last week, uh, because when when I talked with Luke last week, we had started at this point where the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, had announced an impeachment inquiry into the president. And I thought we were going to be at the beginning of this real legal fight over documents and over cooperation from the administration. And for some reason, the Trump administration, they didn't react the way that I expected. So the place to start is that there were two document releases last week that really set up what we saw this week. The first document released was a readout of President Trump's phone call with the president of Ukraine from July. This document was actually released by the Trump administration. And in this call, President Trump discusses military aid for Ukraine, but he also asks Ukraine for two favors. And these favors come in the form of two investigations. The first investigation is an investigation into a conspiracy theory that Ukraine is somehow involved in the hack of DNC servers where these emails were stolen in the 2016 election. Now, you'll recall that our intelligence community has determined that Russian interests were behind that hack and that this theory is really a conspiracy theory that has no basis in fact. And yet President Trump pressured the Ukrainian president to investigate this conspiracy theory, despite the fact that President Trump was informed by his own Homeland Security advisor that this theory had no basis, which is just kind of wild in and of itself. The second investigation is an investigation into Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. His son Hunter was serving on the board of a Ukrainian company while Joe Biden was vice president. And also while Joe Biden was vice president, he executed U.S. foreign policy by pressuring Ukraine to fire a prosecutor who them and other people in the international community viewed as being too soft on corruption. Now, here too, the facts do not show any wrongdoing on the part of Joe Biden or Hunter Biden, even though it may not have been the best judgment in the world to have Hunter Biden be serving on the board of a company where the U.S. clearly had foreign policy interests. Uh, but there is no wrongdoing on the 
part of either of those two that has been shown in the record. So that was the first document release. The second document release was the full whistleblower report, which really sparked this entire impeachment inquiry. And there were two big things that we learned from the whistleblower report. The first was that the whistleblower report itself is really corroborated by the details of President Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian president that were released in the readout by the administration. These details really matched across these two reports of that phone call. But the thing that we learned in addition to corroborating the details of that phone call is that call readouts like this one on President Trump's phone call with Ukraine, but also some calls with some other foreign leaders like the leaders of Russia and Saudi Arabia were being stored on servers designated for classified national security sensitive information, and that the intent of administration officials, according to the whistleblower, was not to secure classified information, but was to conceal politically damaging information in these calls. So those were the two big developments last week. Megan, what do you think about Democrats launching an impeachment inquiry to investigate whether high crimes and misdemeanors were committed here and considering whether or not to recommend the president's removal to the Senate? So my those who have listened to the podcast for a while might remember a few months back at this point that I went on the record saying, well, I didn't I didn't really support impeachment proceedings at that time and that um, I wanted to kind of wait things out. And I was more aligned with the Democrats who were wanting to wait and see how things shook out. Well, now, given all of this new information and everything that's come to light over the past week, I'm down with it. Let's go. Let's start impeachment proceedings because this behavior is unacceptable. You know, we have the Mueller report and we have all of those things. And, you know, while the Mueller report was never really meant to draw a firm like, yes, do this prescriptive action type of conclusion. You know, we've got all of that. But now we've got this, this, this stuff with Ukraine and Trump just really overstepping his bounds, in my opinion. So I say we go for it. So let's talk a little bit about Democrats reactions to this. There's been this debate that has gone on as press reporting has emerged that Democrats are interested in a quick impeachment process that is focused solely on the Ukraine issue um, and the president's potential abuse of power in this context, and that some Democrats, particularly Democrats who are moderates, who are sort of tentative on impeachment, they want to move forward quickly with an inquiry, investigate the Ukraine stuff, get articles of impeachment together, and then make a decision on whether or not focused almost solely on the Ukraine issue whether or not that's enough to refer articles of impeachment to the Senate and put the president on trial in the Senate. The people that I've kind of referred to as the impeachment hawks, the people who have wanted to see President Trump impeached for his uh, other corrupt behaviors, whether it's uh, things related to treatment of unaccompanied children at the border or the president's corruption as it relates to his hotels and his other businesses that he still makes money from. So there are impeachment hawks who look at particularly the stuff related to his hotel and say, we should have a broad impeachment inquiry that holds the president accountable across all of his misdeeds, and that this should be something that is long and drawn out. What do you think of that strategic decision for Democrats, whether they choose a a short impeachment path or a longer one that's more detailed and goes beyond the disclosures around Ukraine? 
I'm certainly more aligned with the longer version, not necessarily because I want to like, you know, nail down the president for every single misdeed he's done, but more because I want to make sure that if we're going to have impeachment proceedings, that we do it right and we make it stick. You know, at this point, we've had two presidents impeached, Johnson in 1868 and Clinton in 98, and both of them were ultimately acquitted and they completed their terms in office. And then we had Nixon, who resigned in 74 to avoid being impeached. By the way, shout out to New York Times for putting that together. Um, that was a really awesome article. article. Um, so what that tells me is that we have a really hard time making impe- impeachment work in this country. Now, you can make arguments on either side of it, saying that maybe they shouldn't have been impeached in the first place. Or you can say it took so long or the cases weren't strong enough or what have you, that they ended up completing their terms anyway, and then it became a non-issue. And I want to make sure that, especially with President Trump, that since he could potentially be elected for another term, that we do this and we do it right and we do it fully. So that way, hoping from my perspective that he is impeached, that he also gets dismissed from office, can't run again, and all the things that come with impeachment, not... This kind of like, oh, yeah, you were impeached, but like it doesn't really mean anything that we've had in the past. Yeah, I'm a little bit torn. I think that it is important to hold the president accountable for misdeeds across a variety of areas. But the big splash in this area that didn't end up being super impactful was the release of the Mueller report. Um, There were a lot of people who read the Mueller report and saw obstruction of justice from the president and saw the way in which he acted kind of blasé about Russian interference into the election. Um, It really does set the table for this issue where he has basically asked the Ukrainian president to interfere in the 2020 elections and to do so in return for military aid. But that report did not create this barnstorm for impeachment. Um, it, It kind of landed like a dud. And I wonder if it is worth it to sort of focus the attention of the American public on this issue specifically because it zeroes in on the president's abuse of power in an area where he has significant responsibility and significant authority, the the conduction of foreign policy. And it seems clear from the documents that we've seen so far that the president is executing a foreign policy agenda in Ukraine aimed at boosting his own reelection prospects. And then it deals with this other important issue of election security, which sort of calls back to concerns that other people had, but this one is like really cut and dry. And so I don't know if it does make more sense to try to focus the attention of the country on one very specific issue and try to hold the president accountable on that. Whereas if you had a a longer, more drawn out inquiry, where if something like the president's tax returns became became this important document or set of documents into that inquiry. And you got in another legal fight that got drawn out about whether or not the Congress could have access to these. And that this news just sort of bubbled back into the background and is replaced in the news cycle by other crazy things going on that the public may just lose interest. I already think there's a lot of Trump fatigue over investigations and things like this. So I'm, I'm really torn about, what the proper path forward is. But I I think that this particular incident 
is a good illustration of what else has gone on in a way that it might be worth it to focus sort of more more solely on this than taking a broader look. I could definitely see that perspective as well. It's I'm with you, Kyle. Like I, I do feel strongly about what I have already said, but you know, given your statement, I, I get it. You know, it's a hard decision to make, and I'm glad I'm not the one to make that decision, quite frankly. The other thing is this maybe seems like a bit of a breaking point for Republicans in a way that other issues haven't been. Uh, the president is uh, reacting in a calm and composed manner, as you would expect. The Los Angeles Times got some audio where the president can be heard basically suggesting that the whistleblower and the, the people he coordinated with to get his account, that those people might, that he insinuated that those people should maybe be murdered. He said, I want to know who this person is, who the person is who gave the whistleblower this information, because that's close to a spy. You know what we used to do in the old days when we were smart, right? The spies and treason, we used to handle it a little differently than we do now. And then this week, after denying that his request was really about the Biden, saying that it was really about fighting corruption and that he had every right to pressure other countries to fight corruption, he kind of did a 180 and called for Ukraine. But not only Ukraine, he also called for China to investigate the Bidens. Well, I would think that if they were honest about it, they'd start a major investigation into the Bidens. It's a very simple answer. Uh, They should investigate the Bidens, because how does a company that's newly formed and all these companies, if you look at, and by the way, likewise, China should start an investigation into the Bidens. Because what happened in China is just about as bad as what happened with, uh, with Ukraine. It's worth noting at this time that there doesn't appear to be any wrongdoing on the part of Joe Biden in China either. I mention all of that to say that President Trump may be digging a hole he can't dig himself out of here, and so that if you're interested in the shortest distance from A to B on removing Trump from office, a narrow focus on Ukraine and on the president's reaction as all of this is going on may be the path to get there. I think that it is certainly the path to take in the sense of, like, yes, it has been the thing that has come to light that is maybe the easiest to build a case on. But I also, again, I want to make sure that we are building a case that sticks. We should include everything, you know, kind of a just add everything else in as an insurance policy and have it all weighed in the balance because we got if we're going to do this, it needs to stick. So let's bring this down to a Georgia level. Uh, Republicans on Capitol Hill have largely resorted to questioning the fact that the whistleblower got this information through his colleagues instead of being a first-person witness to the event that he describes in his complaint. They mostly ignore the fact that the whistleblower complaint got the details of the Ukraine call correctly uh, based on the transcript that was released by the White House. Uh, But you can also sense some frustration in the way in which Republicans have reacted. Uh, There was a sharp exchange between Jim Jordan and Jake Tapper on CNN on Sunday morning, another sharp exchange between John Kennedy, Senator from Louisiana, and and, and Chuck Todd on MSNBC the other day. And then there was this really tense exchange between Georgia Senator David Perdue and a reporter from the Washington Examiner. Let's listen into how Perdue reacted. No, look. Here's a, this is per, first of all, it's not a whistleblower because he was in the room, he was on the phone call. This is second or third or fourth hand information. But in terms of the information, you asked me a question, let me answer the goddamn question. You got it, sir. 
<laughs> yeah, Megan, what, what did you think of Purdue's reaction there? <laughs> I mean, uh, okay, sure, you can answer the goddamn question. Um, but also, maybe, I don't know. I, I, I love that there's a recording of that. It just, I don't, I, I, pretty much everyone on this podcast knows that I'm not a big fan of Purdue. Um, and this just kind of adds to my reasoning why. Well, thanks to Jennifer Bendery from the Huffington Post for that audio recording. It gives you a little bit of a sense of what it is like to be a reporter on Capitol Hill. That was David Perdue getting very grumpy when he was asked this question by a reporter from the Washington Examiner, David Drucker. Uh, The other reaction that I wanted to talk about was the reaction from Lucy McBath. Um, when we, when Luke and I discussed this last week, Lucy McBath was the only Democrat in Georgia's congressional delegation to not have taken a position on impeachment. She also had kind of another regrettable exchange with Cox Media WSB reporter Jamie Dupree. He is a longtime radio reporter on Capitol Hill for Cox Media, and he puts stories out into the Atlanta media market. He also puts some stories out for some other cities. And a little while ago, uh, Jamie Dupree lost his voice due to a rare condition uh, related to his vocal cords. And he, as a radio reporter, is somebody who relied almost exclusively on his voice to do his job. Um, He has since somewhat returned to reporting, and as you'll hear in this recording, his voice is, is, is coming back a little bit, but he, he does struggle a little bit with this. Um, let's listen to this exchange that Lucy McBath had with Cox Media reporter Jamie Dupree. Good morning, sir. Excuse us. My name is Jamie Dupree. Hi, Jamie. My name is Tanner. What do you think? We're on our way to the event right now, so, you know, we'd love to, to chat another time. Is there a reason you don't want to talk about it, man? I'm, I'm just saying we're on our way to an event. That's, that's exactly what we're trying to do. Do you like the idea of achievement? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Why not? Is it uh, something that you're worried about? And why would you have no comment on the Thank you to Matt Laszlo, a correspondent for Vice News and a writer who spends a lot of time on Capitol Hill for that audio. So that was her interaction with Jamie Dupree. And, you know, it's not uncommon for members of Congress to not want to answer questions from reporters. But I thought this was particularly interesting because then later after this exchange, Lucy McBath sent out an email to her supporters and she was critical of Republicans who were wondering what Lucy McBath's position was on impeachment. And in this uh, email to supporters, she says, as a member of the House Judiciary Committee, I voted to formally begin the impeachment inquiry on September 12th, almost two weeks ago. And then she hits Republicans who are attacking her on supporting impeachment or not supporting impeachment or whatever Republicans believe and all the nicknames that they've given her. But the thing that struck me as odd is we in the press have inferred from McBath's silence that she did not really want to give an opinion on impeachment. And then she sent out this email that says, basically, I've had an opinion on impeachment. And I made that opinion clear in a vote in the Judiciary Committee on September 12th. So I don't really understand why 
she had that exchange with Jamie Dupree where she was walking through the halls with staff surrounding her, refusing to answer questions when she already had a position. I don't, what did you think of that exchange between Macbeth and, and Jamie Dupree, Megan? So I will say that it's it's pretty disappointing to hear that that happened. It's not something that I've come to expect from Macbeth. I've come to expect her to um, behave with a little bit more sensitivity. Um, and I guess part of it is just that I understand that uh, Jamie Dupree is dealing with a major health issue and that he is hustling hard and trying and still trying to do his job and, you know, bring us the news. And so I have a lot of respect for that. Um, but it's just disappointing to hear that Macbeth just ignored him. Um, you know, maybe she was having a bad day. Maybe she didn't hear him. Maybe she had given staff some instructions, but didn't know that she needed to make an exception. Uh, I don't know. Maybe she just really, really didn't want to talk to press. But it seems like a missed opportunity for her when now she's having to come back and say, well, I had a position and I, you know, no one would listen to me. Well, she also had an opportunity and she didn't take it. Yeah, I think, you know, she she is a relatively new member who is in a very tough competitive district and maybe she doesn't want a soundbite of her taking a strong position on impeachment. But this to me, when when so much of her political identity is based on real deep moral questions of right and wrong and, and advocacy on, on gun violence that has... Uh, that is so personal to her and that the cost of which is so heavy to her. This also strikes me as like an issue of moral importance about the president's abuse of power and about Congress's role in holding the president accountable. And I'm just surprised that she takes that reaction too. that, that she didn't want the soundbite or she didn't want to engage in that moment. But then she sent out this email after the fact saying, you know, we, I had a position, I voted on this and, you know, people are getting it wrong. So I don't know. It's, it's an odd thing. Um, it feels inconsistent to me. Uh, but you know, being a member of Congress is a, is a tough job sometimes. For sure. But with that, let's move on to our second topic. So about a week ago, young people across the globe and here in Georgia led dozens of demonstrations demanding bold action on climate change. These actions came as countries met at the UN last week with the organization aiming to push the world's leading countries into adopting more ambitious emissions reduction goals. So we wanted to bring this discussion down to our level here in Georgia and talk about where Democratic Senate candidates stand on the issue of climate change early in this race. Uh, But Megan, let's start with some of the activism that has been going on. What is remarkable to me about this moment in activism around climate change is that is it is a movement that is almost entirely led by young people. Uh, the most prominent of these is a uh, 16-year-old Swedish climate activist named Greta Thunberg. She came to the United States on a sailboat, sailed across the Atlantic Ocean on a sailboat uh, to highlight the damage to the environment that air travel does. She did that to attend one of these global climate marches in New York City. So I just want to jump in real quick and say that sailing across the Atlantic is so awesome. Uh, I sail and I am, well, I'll just admit, I'm not a very good sailor. I can barely sail across a lake on a calm, well, on a moderately windy, but not like overtly windy day. And so first of all, that's just cool. But second of all, she's, you know, 
wind power is something that we need to harness. And she's making a great example in that capacity too. Like not just as she's saying that air travel pollutes, but also she's saying you can use something that doesn't create pollution to get places. So good on her. Yeah, it was an impressive feat. I think it was a several day trip. Uh, and I think it was on a solar powered sailboat. There were solar panels that were, I think, given this uh, vessel some some power to use there. So yeah, a good example there. But she is this leader of a movement uh, that is made up disproportionately of people in their teens and their 20s. It's about 15,000 people across the country who have showed up at direct actions and about 80,000 people who have participated in less direct actions, according to this profile of this movement in Vox. And this movement, which is, is sort of formed under this umbrella group called the Sunrise Movement, they have 290 small chapters across the U.S., um, and they have really shifted the discussion around climate change to the point that not only in big liberal cities, but in smaller cities across the country, in places like Atlanta, in other cities around the globe, you have these demonstrations over the last few weeks where where millions of people marched aiming to pressure their governments wherever they were to do something on climate change. So those demonstrations were also here in Atlanta. According to reporting, about 200 people participated in a student-led demonstration at the state capitol. Uh, both Ted Terry and John Ossoff, two Georgia Senate candidates, they spoke to the crowd. And the crowd there, organized under the student-led protest, had laid out goals for the state legislature, uh, demanding that they legislatively mandate greenhouse gas reductions of 65% by 2030 and get Georgia to net zero emissions by 2040. They wanted the state to reject new fossil fuel extraction and transportation projects, think things like pipelines, and they wanted to see the elimination of fossil fuel subsidies and a constitutional right passed in the state to safe air, clean water, and healthy soil. Now, all of this is going on right now because the United Nations met in New York last week, and the UN is trying to get leading governments who are willing to take action on climate change to increase the emissions reductions goals that they have to set bigger goals on this issue. Megan, what do you think about that movement shifting to being led by young people and being led in this sort of mass direct action demonstration kind of way to the point that you get a couple hundred people demonstrating in front of our state capitol uh, on a weekday? I really like it. I think that it's important as, you know, a member of the millennial generation to show that we're not just about avocado toast and, you know, student debt, basically. It's important to us. It's it's our world. It's our planet. We're the ones that are going to have to deal with it for longer than a lot of the people who are in power just, you know, going by lifespans. So, so we should be the ones to take up the mantle and to say, this is important. This is the movement we're going to make. This is what the statement we're going to make. I really agree with it. And I'm, you know, I may, I may not have been able to go to the Capitol. I didn't, but I'm doing things in my workplace that are helping to create a more eco-friendly workplace. So this is something that a lot of people I know are also engaged in. So this is also a discussion that has dominated the Democratic primary for president. Uh, nearly every credible presidential candidate has come out with some sort of a sweeping vision for federal government action to address climate change. The leader... Uh, in these proposals has been 
Jay Inslee, the governor of Washington, who is now a former candidate. But he, as David Roberts at Vox described it, he basically wrote the policy framework for what the Green New Deal should be. Policy papers that he has put out have aggressive decarbonization targets, sector-by-sector policies, and a massive and a massive array of public investments designed to achieve them, and a focus on high-quality jobs and vulnerable communities. That's the way David Roberts sums up the plans that Jay Inslee has put forward. So you have a youth-led movement that is doing all this direct action, that's trying to engage young people, and then you have Jay Inslee, who's been sort of an intellectual leader in terms of putting some policy meat on the bones based on his own experience in Washington. And you have a think tank called New Consensus that's led by a a 29-year-old African-American woman named Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who is seeking to also turn the Green New Deal resolution that was introduced in the House and the Senate, to turn that into legislation, to turn that into a federal vision for what should happen on climate change. I think what she does and the work that Jay Inslee has done uh, based on his experience as governor and the proposals that he put forward, these are going to be two of, I think, the bedrock documents that set up what democratic discussion is around climate change uh, going forward, particularly if a Democrat wins the next presidential election. So that's a lot of what's going on federally, but we wanted to contextualize this down to Georgia too. Megan, based on this activism and, and this policy development that's going on at the federal level, what would you like to see from a Georgia Senate candidate on the issue of climate? I really want to see a strong stance. I want to see a plan put together. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about presidential candidate Warren is that she's got a plan for everything. And I would like to see more politicians take that stance and take that approach. Um, Even if the plan isn't necessarily completely feasible, um, it shows me that it's been thought about, that it's been prioritized, that real effort has been made to put together something that is workable. Obviously, compromises will have to be made. But I want to see some strong research-driven stances. And I haven't seen it yet. Well, let's take a look at what some of the Georgia Democratic Senate candidates have said about climate so far. Let's start with the person who probably has the most ambitious vision right off the bat. That is Ted Terry, who has endorsed a Green New Deal. Let's hear what Ted Terry had to say about this. Today, I'm standing in solidarity with people around the world in support of the global climate strike. As mayor here in Clarkston, Georgia, I have led the effort to commit our city to a 100% clean energy and clean transportation future. We've been receiving refugees for decades now, and we're hearing more and more that climate disruptions are causing people to flee their homes, their countries, and become refugees. Clarkson will continue to welcome those refugees, but we must do more to act on the climate crisis. It is going to take large-scale systemic change. Clarkston can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We have to get our governments to act. That's why I support a Green New Deal and why I'm running for the United States Senate here in Georgia in 2020 to pass a Green New Deal. Please join our... All right, so Ted Terry has a has a definitive stance in favor of the Green New Deal. Let's hear from John Ossoff. Look, what we want, it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. 
We want to be free, healthy people living on a clean, beautiful planet. We demand an end to its destruction. So that was what John Ossoff had to say at the Atlanta climate protest. But I think the thing that stands out to me about Ossoff's position is that the passionate words that you heard there from him a minute ago, they aren't really backed up by any policy substance as of today. I went through some press clippings about what he said about this issue. And he told the New York Times, he said, now on the Green New Deal, I commend Senator Edward Markey and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for linking environmental policy and infrastructure policy. However, do I believe that the critical path to fighting climate change requires the abolition of private health insurance market? No, I do not. Basically, what he's referring to here is that the Green New Deal includes a proposal supporting Medicare for all, And so he didn't really engage on the substance of the Green New Deal or on climate policy in this interview. He basically turned to a Republican talking point and said that he does not support Medicare for all. So that's where John Ossoff is. Teresa Tomlinson, she doesn't have audio that's worth drawing on right now because she's put out a detailed policy paper since she talked to us in April. And she laid out some concrete positions on climate, including the construction of a new power grid, manufacturing of turbines and solar energy equipment, and expanded rail lines and energy-efficient transportation infrastructure. She talks about rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, increased public-private partnerships for research, and extended tax credits for solar deployment and buying electric vehicles. So she's got some concrete policy views there, but nothing to me, nothing that strikes me at least as sort of a comprehensive plan. And then Sarah Rigsamico will finish up with her. She doesn't want to get into get into any specific policy at this point. Here's what she told us on Peach Pot a few weeks ago. I think the most important thing is it's a noble goal to protect and preserve this planet. The United Nations and a number of research studies have also shown us that by the year 2050, the number one cause of death around the world may well be lack of access to clean water. We're the caretakers of this planet. Um, And that means being able to build sustainable energy economies. That means being able to build a regulatory environment that both allows businesses to thrive and innovate and grow and create jobs and protects the natural resources that we want to leave to our kids and the eco protects the ecosystems. We can get in there and dust up over individual laws or pieces of a policy. But I would sure hope that even people on the other side of the aisle can agree, we've got to do something to protect this place we call home. I would hope, again, people, regardless of party, can agree on the justice aspect of conservation and environmental protection. People of color, marginalized communities, 
poor folks, and particularly in the South, are bearing the brunt of ecological damage. So, you know, it's not just about our individual responsibility that we bear, but I do think we need something bold, um, something large scale. So that's the four Senate candidates at this point and their view on climate. Megan, these you get four pretty distinct visions from these four candidates. But when you lay out all their positions next to each other, do you have any reactions to the past that each of these candidates is choosing as of this point? Um, so, you know, obviously, with me saying that I wanted a plan, Tomlinson is the closest, as you said, you know, when you reacted to it, it's not really a plan. It's not as robust as I would like, but she's the closest. She's the one that, you know, potentially with some more work and, you know, really de- devoting some time to it, she could kind of blaze that trail and, and lead the way. And, you know, I, I, I like what I'm seeing so far. But, you know, as far as everyone else, like supporting the Green New Deal is great. It's just not a plan. And it's not anything more than just saying, okay, yeah, yeah. That's cool. I want more. Yeah, I find this a little bit underwhelming. Also, I interpret Ted Terry's embrace of a Green New Deal a little bit differently. I think what you see in the other three candidates is a little bit of a resistance to aligning themselves with the actual big, bold idea that's on the table. I think you see that resistance for political reasons. I think, uh, John Ossoff sort of immediately takes the opportunity to sort of, in his own way, detract from the Green New Deal by pointing out a policy that, yes, he doesn't support Medicare for all, but also isn't addressing the issue of climate in that answer. Ted Terry is the only one, I think, who embraces that bold vision, even if it lacks some detail. I think for Teresa Tomlinson, she has some good ideas on the table. But I think when you look at her response, when you look at what Sarah Riggs Amico says, in this sort of general fallback on, we need to do something big and bold and systemic, but I can't really tell you exactly what it is right now, is almost the way I interpret it. It's disappointing to me, and I'm a little bit underwhelmed by all of it. Because I think the thing that you would want to look for in somebody who was serious about addressing the issue of climate change is, are they willing to set targets? And do they have ideas, policy proposals, even if it's not a firmed up final plan? Do they have ideas and proposals that reflect a reasonable approach to meeting those targets? Because what we have laid out from scientists is, we have goals we have to meet in terms of emissions reductions. If we do not meet those goals, there will be catastrophic consequences. They won't be the same everywhere. They'll affect some people worse than others, but we'll have catastrophic consequences due to climate change. And if you don't lay out a comprehensive set of ideas that can reasonably put you in arm's length of reaching that goal by 2050, then I don't think you have a serious vision. And so I am somewhat disappointed across the board, maybe with the exception of Ted Terry, if Ted Terry continues to support the vision for the Green New Deal as it gets flushed out, if he's willing to put political capital on the line to support getting the job done on climate, um, I think he, by embracing the Green New Deal vision, 
is somewhat willing or signals at least a willingness to spend political capital on it right now. Uh, but otherwise, I look across the board, particularly at Amico and her desire to say, we can get in there and dust up over individual laws, but I hope people on the other side would see that we've got to do something. Amico also opposes getting rid of the filibuster. She told Peach Pod, she told me on Peach Pod that it was like treating the symptom rather than the cause. That to me just doesn't strike me as a serious vision on climate. And so I think the jury is still out because it's early in this process, but I am underwhelmed at the beginning. Yep. All right, let's move on to our final topic this week. And joining us for our third topic is Luke Boggs. Luke, welcome aboard. Welcome. Happy to finally be on the show. (laughs) Hey, Luke. Late last week, lawmakers from the House Appropriations Committee convened for budget hearings as the state considers significant spending cuts in the next legislative session. The state's economists delivered some sobering news about the state's economic outlook for early 2020, and the governor's office seemed to show that they'd been feeling some of the political heat on one aspect of Governor Kemp's proposed spending cuts. So let's update everyone on where this discussion of budget cuts stands after these budget hearings. Um, So let's start with just sort of the two main takeaways from these hearings. Uh, The sobering economic news that was delivered by the state economists is that there is a 50-50 chance of a recession next year. Now, the the state economists said that this was not likely to be a recession on the scale of the Great Recession. It it was one that is likely to happen are likely to be somewhat mild and likely to, if it happens, be precipitated by either some economic or political shock uh, that is occurring around the globe or, or here in our country. You know, we started this show off talking about the latest on the impeachment inquiry, which um, I don't know exactly how that's affecting the markets, but it certainly is political instability. Um, what do y'all think about this possibility of a, of a small recession and how the state to date is is sort of proposing to deal with it through the governor's proposed budget cuts. I'm a little bit worried about the proposed budget cuts. As we've talked about previously on this podcast, it's not like Georgia's already w- running at 100%. There are some austerity measures that we've taken that we've never really come back from. And so I feel like cutting more is going to really cripple the state. But other than that, I, you know, obviously, I just hope that we that they're wrong. I hope that there isn't a recession because that would be bad for me personally, but I mean, probably pretty much everyone. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I think it is something that is very bad if that is the route that it's going. Uh, I've been wondering throughout this whole discussion of these budget cuts, it it seems like there's some other reason why they want to cut the budget. And we've talked about it before. Uh, I still firmly believe that a lot of this has to do with tax cuts and the administration's inability to consider revenue expansion in any significant way. And I think uh, looking at Kemp's real priorities that, you know, are good, like raising teacher salaries and trying to do a tax cut and the possibility of recession, you combine those three things and any budget person that has a degree from a reputable university would tell you that you either have to increase expenditure, you know, increase revenues or decrease expenditures when you're looking at a economic outlook like that. And, you know, because they are 
a Republican administration in the Deep South, the only option is to cut stuff. And so uh, with us already being in austerity, we want to go to austerity plus plus and cut even more. And I, I think it's just ironic how Kemp was giving a lot of credit last session that despite the disorganization of his administration, that they had at least tried to give state employees a little bit more money and given teachers a little bit more money. And now they're turning around and in a situation where they're going to have to fire state employees. And it just seems completely paradoxical that we're in this place where, you know, their their priorities are so mis- mismatched and unfocused that you're in this situation where you do something to try to boost the morale of employees by paying them more and then you turn around and you put all this budget uncertainty on them so now it's like oh i got a raise last month but now i might not have my job you know starting in january so it's a strange strange place the governor finds himself in yeah and i I think this is the the second takeaway that we'll get to here is that the one place where the governor's office seems to be feeling a little bit of the political heat is on the possibility that there would be job losses because of these budget cuts. The governor's uh, director of the Office of Planning and Budget, Kelly Farr, he let agencies know that it was the position of Governor Kemp and the administration that they would like agencies to look at other ways of reducing spending before laying people off. Uh, But according to press reporting from James Salzer at the AJC, they did not rule it out. They said that job cuts are still very possible. But there was this recognition by the governor that these cuts, should they lead to job losses, that that would not be ideal. But what stood out to me is that the reaction to the job losses was one thing, But the fact that there wasn't a similar kind of reaction to the kinds of services that would be cut in the proposed budget cuts, and that these hearings, because they did not feature the agency heads, weren't really a discussion of the proposed budget cuts at all yet, cuts to the cooperative extension program that has supported farmers who have been in a tough situation because of Hurricane Michael and the trade conflict, cuts to mental health services for of vulnerable people who rely on the state to get mental health services. I mean, there were there are a lot of vulnerable people and a lot of people who have already been caught at the wrong end of small bad issues in our economy that would have to pay for these cuts, essentially would have to pay for the state preparing for a recession, possibly preparing to pay for that on the backs of these people. What do you think about the governor's office being focused on this problem of job losses and potential layoffs or furloughs because of these cuts, but but no discussion of the impact of these cuts on the people whose programs would be cut. I think SIG employees vote, and I think the vulnerable populations that they are going that are going to be subject to these cuts don't vote <laughs> nearly as much. I think it's honestly that simple. Additionally, you know, Governor Kemp does have some some things he would like to do as governor, and to successfully do things as governor, you need state employees, and you need good state employees, and you need people whose morale is not on the toilet and who have expertise, and if you are, you know, not only having a budget cut acts over everyone's head, but also a will I have my job <laughs> uh, concern over people i i feel like you're just not going to be able to retain very good people because when you're unilaterally cutting budgets by four percent and then 
suggesting that there will be a 6% decrease in the following year, even if you aren't worried about losing your job, you know that the mission that you believe in, assuming you are you know, part of an agency you believe in, is going to be a lot harder to accomplish. And, you know, people in state government, people in the federal government, they're pretty talented people. They can get jobs elsewhere. And so if you have the options uh, between being in a completely uh, bled out state agency or going to work in the private sector, you might do that instead. So I, I, I think... That's why they are concerned about the job cut aspect, because I don't think there's anything that could lower morale more than this. Well, that's exactly what I did do, Luke. When I worked in Louisiana, I was working for a state agency, and all of a sudden, Louisiana dealt with a massive budget issue where basically a bunch of the budget was missing. And the talk at the town was... Well, we're going to start furloughing people. Maybe we're going to lay people off. We don't really know because we're actually not really even sure how much of the budget is missing or what the deal is. And that weighed into my calculus. I was already kind of looking to make a career move. And I said, all right, well, I'm leaving and moved to the private sector and haven't looked back. Um, I think I think the one other piece of this that hangs out there is this possibility of the tax cut. And there was one sign of some hesitation over the tax cut. That came from House Appropriations Chairman Terry England, who said in an interview with Georgia Recorder, he said, if we can do it, I think we want to do it, talking about the second step down in the tax income tax rate. If we can do it, I think we want to do it to help save taxpayers money. But at the same time, we've got to look at it and make sure it's not something that winds up hurting those folks that we try to look after, whether it's students in schools or paving roads or whatever. But if we can do it responsibly, then I think it stays on the table for a good conversation. But that was not, you know, that 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 comes from a relatively lower profile House Republican. He's important in the legislature, but he is not. He doesn't command the political attention that somebody like Governor Kemp does. But there was this ounce of hesitation on it of like, there will be other considerations, even though it's an election year, we aren't just going to blindly pass a tax cut. But do you think that that sentiment gets any further in the Republican caucus than maybe the House Appropriations chairman? I think that there are a lot of Republicans who got elected to the legislature during Deal's term. And I think Deal pursued a lot of efforts that were fairly bipartisan and popular. And these cuts are going to threaten those things. And so I would not be surprised if quietly there is some animosity among the ranks of Republicans uh, about pursuing cuts that will really fundamentally hurt the efforts that, you know, they worked in partnership with Governor Deal on. Now, that being said, do I think there's going to be a bunch of Republicans rebelling in the Capitol saying that they don't want to do these cuts? Eh, probably not, but you know, Democrats have picked up a lot of seats over the past couple cycles, and so they're gonna have a little bit more cover. And I think you know, people, oh, I was in the bathroom when the vote happened, or oh, I had a flight that day. I think you know, stuff like that that really screws up their quorum is a lot more possible now, just due to the amount of Democrats there are at the state capitol. And so, I wouldn't be surprised if these cuts get slow walked or reduced in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I really don't suspect there will be any uh, new revenue sources uh, beyond things that we've heard about, which would be limited to casinos and maybe internet sales tax. But that's that's about as far as I think they go on that front. So 
I I think there's probably in the same way that like every Republican hates Trump. If you ask them behind a closed door, I think there's a lot of Republicans that don't like these cuts. But if it hits the floor, they're going to vote for it because they are, you know, a Republican and Governor Kemp is a Republican. And so this is what you do. Yep. Well, this will be a discussion to watch moving forward. Uh, but the key thing to know as we head into the first week of October is that some of these cuts actually appear to be going into effect on October 1st. Um, so, Kyle, this may just be my being a rookie, but when you say they're going into effect, what does that mean exactly? Does that mean like the budget actually comes out of these uh, the coffers or does that mean that they just get codified and then they will be enforced later? So my understanding is that the governor's budget instructions uh, said that he would begin withholding funds from state agencies so that the governor was sort of planning to hold back some funds that had already been appropriated that would essentially put these cuts into effect. I think it's unclear at this point in what way those cuts are going to go into effect. And I think it's particularly unclear as to whether or not for some of these agencies that in their proposals for the next legislative session are saying that their cuts are going to mean job losses or furloughs, whether or not they, the agencies will feel comfortable putting those cuts into effect based on the governor withholding some of these funds. So I think there is a lack of clarity on how this will work, uh, but it does appear that at least in some way, these agencies are going to be on a little bit tighter budget until the amended budget is considered during legislative session starting in January. Gotcha. And I want to clarify one thing on my, my skepticism. I would actually not be surprised if the committee work that Republicans and Democrats do in the House and Senate results in these cuts being not as bad or more targeted. Because again, I think it's really important to, to point out that Kemp has not said... I'm doing these specific cuts, and those cuts just so happen to be 4% of the budget this year and 6% next year. He's basically on the like non-mandatory funding, has just said 4% this year across the board, don't care what it is, 6% across the board uh, next year, don't care what it is. And so what I really think will happen is even if we end up hitting the same dollar amount, I think the cuts will end up being a lot more targeted. Because one thing I, I will give... Uh, both parties a lot of credit for down in the state capitol at least thus far taking some like one or two cultural issues out you know aside this legislature does not like to do things that are just plain stupid um it's you know as as much crap as we give them for cutting taxes and potentially cutting taxes again it took them a long time to get there uh, a lot of other states were cutting taxes in the same time period, and it really took them a long time to get to a tax cut uh, because it was not as fiscally responsible. And Deal fought it for a long time because he was trying to keep our bond rigging good. So as far as just completely doing something across the board that doesn't make sense, I'm skeptical that would happen. Uh, and I think the committee work will reflect them trying to balance Kemp's goals with what makes sense with what the goals of the legislature overall have been for, you know, a couple of years. And so I think that will be very interesting and in kind of comparing what the cuts look like they're going to be to what they end up actually being will be a really, really important story and a good way to measure the success or failure of this current administration and the legislature they're working with. 
Well, and this is part of the ebb and flow of this tax cut or this spending cut debate. Um, I've seen Republicans who, including a former legislator who's who have said that agencies that do not want to see their budget cut at all will propose the most politically painful cuts as the first round of negotiations on these things. And then the governor sort of has to reel them in and say, no, you can't do a cut that's going to mean people will lose their jobs or be furloughed. You have to look at things like using technology to lower your expenses or lowering travel or uh, lowering travel expenses or saving money through attrition in the number of employees that you have. Those are the kinds of thing. That's the kind of sort of gentle pushback that Governor Kemp and the OPB director are giving to the agencies right now. I think the thing that is somewhat unique is that this is sort of playing out publicly because of Governor Kemp announcing these cuts publicly and the legislature giving this gentle pushback against the governor to say, actually, we want to know what's in these cuts. We want to have hearings in the fall like they did last week. Um, So, yeah, this does sort of follow that path that has been followed in previous budget battles before. Um, But I think the reason to highlight the cuts now, even though the legislature may or may not adopt them, is that if nobody says anything at all about cuts to mental health services for vulnerable people, then the legislature and the governor may think, oh, nobody really cares about this. And this isn't a political problem for us. So we're going to do the cuts. So that's why I think it's worth mentioning now. But it is, it, it is true that these cuts, as they appear in their draft form, are probably not going to look this way during legislative debate in the winter and into the spring. But at the same time, there's not a lot left to cut. So, you know, <laughs> what are they going to be if they're not this? <laughs> All right. Well, I think that is where we are going to wrap it for the week. So, Megan, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me as always. And Luke, thanks for hopping on for our last topic on the budget. No problem. Always here to talk about budgets. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there, and we will talk to you all next week. Bye, guys. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.